The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 130 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not my present or past employers. I've never disclosed any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So just another friendly reminder, folks, we're on at least a dozen different playback mediums, but we have our own very, uh, we have our own website. It's, uh, we have our own very own website, I should say. It's at www.tf7radio.com. Uh, just like your playback mediums, you can listen at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. That's the beauty of internet radio. And we ask that you visit the site. Don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe to the show, especially from the site. So we got the site's maturing very well. We got a lot of things going on there, our listenership and, and uh, well, I guess our viewership of the site itself, uh, is definitely growing, but week by week, because it's the word is getting out. The site is uh, is up and running, and all the episodes are up there. And we got a bunch of other things up there as well. So check it out when you get a chance. We got a great guest for you this evening. Mr. Michael Wallfish is going to be with us tonight. Mr. Wallfish is the founder of Walrus Security, and that's a company whose solution uniquely protects people from the rapidly growing problem of fraud due to business email compromise, otherwise known as BEC. So Mike is a tenured professor of computer science at NYU in the Courant Institute. His academic work has spanned applied cryptography, cybersecurity, computer systems, and networking. And he has a particular focus on the verifiability and integrity of computation. And with his collaborators initiated the study of practical probabilistic proofs. And we're going to talk a little bit about this this evening and what that means. And his honors include paper awards at SOSP, NIEESNP, Oakland, the Sloan Research Fellowship, NSF Career, and several other teaching awards. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard. He graduated summa cum laude and his PhD from MIT, both in computer science. And so we're, we're talking about a very, very intelligent uh, guy. He's just an all-around wicked smart dude. So you're going to learn a lot from this episode tonight. It's going to be exciting. Let's get to it. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the show the founder and CEO of Walrus Security and Professor of Computer Science at New York University, Mr. Michael Walfish. Michael, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. 
Thanks, George. It's great to be here. So you're, you're the founder of, of Walrus Security, as well as being a professor at NYU. Can you tell me a little bit of something about Walrus uh, Security and what they do? Because I, I really want to level set for our, for our audience for the discussion that we're about to have. Sure. So we make sure that you pay the right person. And what we're motivated by is that today it's easy. And in fact, it's terrifyingly easy to pay the wrong person. Fraudsters know this. And so there's now a whole category of cybercrime called uh, business email compromise or, or BEC. Um, many of your listeners, of course, will know what BEC is. But to review, the, the basic attack looks like this. You're sitting there in the accounts payable department of an organization, and you get an email that appears to be from the CFO saying, hey, we're concluding a transaction. Could you please urgently wire money here? And then the money sometimes goes out. Now, that was something that we saw a number of years ago. Folks are generally uh, wise to that, but the attack has now evolved and become much more clever. So what we're seeing now is cases where the attacker gets into the email system of somebody you need to pay, your counterparty. Like, George, if you were going to buy a, a car or something like that, you might get email from your car dealer in the context of this legitimate purchase telling you, okay, here's how you actually buy the car. Here's where you send your wire payment. And then you might actually send it. Uh, what makes this work is that the attackers are conducting long cons, that they're sitting there parked in email systems, monitoring communication back and forth. And then at a crucial moment, they're substituting their own payment instructions for the payment instructions of the legitimate recipient of the funds. So let's unpack this a little bit. Can you give me a few real life examples where these BEC attacks have happened and have been successful? Yeah, so it's, it's happening um, in <laughs> all over. It seems like everyone has a story, and that, that's actually borne out by the, the statistics, which, which I can come to. But uh, people have lost their life savings sending down payments on homes to thieves who are impersonating their escrow or title company. Wow, uh, that's title terrible. Yeah, yeah. It, that's it, terrible. Yeah. Title agents have actually gone under because they've redeemed proceeds on real estate to the fraudster instead of to the legitimate seller or to the bank that made the original seller the loan. Law firms have been plagued by this. Art galleries have gone under because they've sent the proceeds of uh, payment to the fraudster instead of the artist. Um, and the list goes on. Um, what we're seeing, if you uh, look at the statistics that the FBI's put out, this problem is actually increasing exponentially. So, so it was at 0 0.2 billion in 2014, and now it's up to 12.6 billion in 2019, which corresponds to more than doubling, like 2.3x growth per year. So don't most Fortune 500 companies, they're very security conscious. They have tons and tons of tools. These large corporations, don't they have protections in place? I mean, they have anti-phishing software and things like that. Do, do, do these, are these tools effective in your mind? So uh, let me answer that with a yes and a no. Um, there are a number of countermeasures that people deploy to protect their own email systems. Something like you know, two-factor authentication on email within the enterprise makes it right. much harder for the adversary to take over an email account. Um, Anti-phishing software 
attempts to flag messages that are obvious fakes. The problem, though, is that the attack, the, the exact attack we're talking about here, revolves around the cybersecurity, not of your organization, but of your counterparties. And so an email comes in, it looks legitimate in all respects. The AI can't detect that there's a problem for the exact reason that you can't detect that there's a problem because the email has the form of a legitimate email. It's just that the numbers in the account and the bank routing number have been changed. And so there's no way that people realize that this is fake. Uh, so, so as you might know, with your cybersecurity background and what banks advise is that if you're paying someone, the actual countermeasure in place is to pick up the phone. Oh, and call, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, I got this email. Uh, are these the right wire instructions? Yeah, these treasury systems are very automated in a lot of sense. And you just basically put everything into motion and people get paid. But, you know, there's nothing, hey, there's nothing be better than picking up the phone and saying, hey, did you just request this, you know, uh, payment or did you request this transfer or whatever it is? Um, I just want to make sure I'm just going to the right place. Obviously, that's, that's a best practice. Maybe in, in some place where there's so many transactions, not feasible. But so let's talk about that. What is the best practice? What, is the, what, what are best practices in this situation? So it's really the phone call. Um, that is the, the standard advice. And the problem with that is what we found from talking to lots of folks, and, and this includes folks at banks, uh, companies, even law enforcement, is that phone calls, unfortunately, are a custom more honored in the breach than the observance. And that's because of exactly what you said, that if there's a high enough transaction volume, it's inconvenient, or you're trying to yeah. conclude a transaction quickly, like you're not going to pick up the phone. It might not yeah. be viable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, beyond that, and this is going to sound a, a little bit weird, but people actually make the phone call incorrectly. And, like you might be asking yourself, how can I make a phone? Like this is ancient technology. How is it possible to use the phone in a wrong way? And it, the answer is that you actually have to be careful about how you do it. Um, you have to make the phone call outbound yourself. And a lot of folks forget that. They're just trained, oh, I need to confirm by phone. And then an inbound phone call comes in, the caller ID is faked, and the organization that's supposed to be making the phone call, in fact, is not gaining that security because the inbound phone call comes from the fraudster. Another thing we've seen, it's very common, you get email asking for payment that, and you're expecting that email, and we'll see people reply to that email saying, okay, I need to confirm by phone, where's a good phone number I can reach you? And it's a totally natural thing for a person to do, but it's not secure because if the email itself was spurious, then the attacker gets that email and replies with their own phone number and that can and does happen. Another, sorry, yeah, you were gonna? No, I was, uh, no go ahead, finish it. Yes, yeah, so, so another issue, and, and this gets uh, into things that very few companies will resist, is that the fraudsters know about phone confirmation. So they'll arrange to change the phone number that's on file. Uh, going back to the theme of a long con, what they'll do is send email impersonating, for instance, a vendor to a, a large corporation saying, okay, our phone number's changed. Here's the new one. They don't ask for money. Then a new phone number goes on file. And then 60, 30 days later or 60 days later, 90 days later, whatever it is, the attacker will send fake email asking for payment or saying, look, our, our payment instructions have changed. 
And then the accounts payable department will do the right thing. They'll, they'll call the phone number, except that that phone number is the wrong phone number now mm. because the attacker had successfully <laughs> changed it. And it turns out that companies generally, uh, from what we've looked at, don't have good processes around changes to phone numbers. You have to treat that phone number change as just as privileged an operation as, as wiring money. Yeah, so I'm starting to get this, and I, now I got a different question that I was going to yeah. ask. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so now during this crisis, right, everybody's not, everybody's not at work. Everybody's using different phone numbers, really. I mean, not everybody has the ability to use their phone, the work number at home right now. Um, a lot of it is transferred uh, to different numbers. People can call the work numbers, but how, how are people dealing with this? They're not even at their normal place of business. Yeah, so, so this is um, actually uh, a, a big problem. Um, you, you know, as you probably know, over the last several weeks, uh, given the crisis, there has been an uptick in business email compromise. Um, I think your one of your recent guests uh, also alluded to this. Part of the issue, if you just take a step back, is that people got wise to a pattern. It, it was suspicious if the Treasury Department, for example, got an email saying from an executive saying, hey, there's this one-time payment because of this one-time thing. It's urgent. Can you wire money to this place you've never wired before? Oh, I'm not in the office. Call me on my cell phone to confirm. That used to be extremely suspicious, but now that's the actual pattern. And so the advice to people sending money to be on the lookout for anomalies isn't as applicable because we're living through an anomaly. So once the legitimate payment requests have that form, then it means that there's an opportunity for the adversary to cloak their spurious, fraudulent emails as looking like one of those expected anomalies. Yeah, so now you've piqued my interest. I, I, I want to know how Walrus deals with this. Oh. So what's the, what's the solution? Because now, you know, I'm very interested to know. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the key is to make sure that, that when you issue a payment, you're absolutely sure that the person you're paying is the right one. And then how do you know that? Well, you need to know that the communication that you got saying, pay me, actually came from the person you wanted to pay. And th that's what our platform, which is called Double Check, does. It provides an authentication solution that guarantees that you're paying the, the right person. And how does it work? So it's a web application. Uh, both you, the payer, and your payee connect to it. Your payee doesn't need a username and password. So uh, first of all, we have to make sure, because of that, that the payee is the person that you're intending to pay. And we have some cool and, and proprietary technology that lets us be pretty sure of that. Uh, and, and another key part of this is making it usable. If we slow down your transaction because you have to perform some security ritual or you have to go outside and sacrifice a goat or something like that, <laughs> no one's going to use it, right? So, so part of our solution, this is something we've worked on, is, is, is creating a carefully tailored user experience that makes it easy to do and hard to skip. Right. Well, this is very interesting, and I want to you know, continue to talk about this right after the break, but we got to take a, a short break to, to hear from our sponsors, but stick with us, folks. We're going to continue this conversa conversation a lot more uh, here to come on the uh, episode of Tapsmore 7 Radio. If you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. 
We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the founder and CEO of Waller Security, Mr. Michael Wallfish. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the founder and CEO of Walrus Security and professor of computer science at New York University, Mr. Michael Walfish. So, Mike, in your academic life, I understand that you've done a lot of work on secure system design and, and verifiable outsourcing. Can you level set for our audience what verifiable outsourcing is? Yeah, so the, the basic idea is that one computer wants to check that another one executed correctly. And this is a fundamental thing. It applies in a lot of contexts. A common example is cloud computing, where you have some program that you write, you outsource its execution to a set of computers in the cloud, you get back an answer, the result of the program that you outsourced, and you want to make sure that that output is actually consistent with the program that you wrote. Uh, There are other applications as well uh, to blockchain, uh, hard, untrusted hardware manufacturer as well. But for now, just imagine that some computer asserts that a particular output really is the output of the, your program on some input that you select. And you might like to check that assertion. So a naive way to do this is to re-execute it yourself. You wrote the computer yourself. You could simply take the input and execute it and see if the output that your computer produces matches what that, those outsourced computers had returned. But of course, that defeats the purpose of having asked the other computer in the first place. And it may not even be possible because there may be other inputs that that other computer uses that aren't available to you. So instead, what you might like in the vision here is a witness or certificate that your computer could efficiently check. And then you wouldn't have to worry whether the remote computer executed correctly or not. Either the witness or certificate checks out or it doesn't. And that's what verifiable outsourcing is at at a high level. So when you're thinking about these witnesses or certificates that you mentioned, are, are these connected to probabilistic proofs? Oh, oh yes, uh, absolutely. So, so the, these witnesses or certificates are probabilistic proofs. Um, you know, of course, that raises the question, what's a probabilistic proof? Uh, it's a kind of mathematical object uh, from, from theoretical computer science. And, and in fact, they, they sound impossible when you first hear about them. They're extraordinary. Um, For example, one of the central mathematical results in that research area is that the computer doing the checking, which we sometimes call a verifier, can actually gain assurance in such a certificate 
by only checking it in a handful of locations, not even checking the entire thing. And that sounds crazy uh, when you first hear it, but the reason it works and the reason that we call these probabilistic proofs is that random checking is essential. Uh, if the untrusted party, the one with the burden of producing the proof, doesn't know where in the proof you're going to be looking, then it can't arrange its answers to fool your questions. Um, one way to think about this is that it can't really ruin the proof or fake the proof in many places, otherwise your random checks would detect it. Uh, a variant of this idea is a so-called interactive proof where one side, the verifier, essentially cross-examines the untrusted computer. And if the untrusted computer has started with a false assertion, the verifier will catch that uh, proving computer in a lie. So this sounds pretty interesting. Is this something that you invented? No, no. Um, it, it, uh, it, it actually uh, was something that started uh, in the 1980s. Um, oh, so with, it's been around for a long time. Well, so, so it's interesting that you say that. I mean, it, it's actually, I think it's fair to describe it as revolutionary. The revolutions unfolded somewhat slowly by the standards of revolutions, but it, it's the 1985 paper that got it started. It's called The Knowledge Complexity of Interactive Proof Systems by Shafi Goldwasser, Silvio Macaulay, and Charlie Rakoff. And uh, Shafi Goldwasser and Silvio Macaulay actually won the Turing Award which is the Nobel Prize given, it's the Nobel Prize for computer science is how it's often described. And one of the things they won that for was this paper, uh, which provided the first probabilistic proof. And there've been lots of mathematical work on probabilistic proofs over the 20 years after that. But th th these were mainly theoretical, not mainly, they were entirely theoretical and they had, you know, if you were to actually try to implement them or build them into a system, they would have had like galaxy sized costs, literally, like the uh, number of uh, bits you'd need to represent one of these certificates would be like larger than the number of atoms in the universe. And the time it would take to produce one of these proofs for the untrusted yeah. thing would, would be thousands of years. So now, now when I say that, it, it sounds a little bit disrespectful to the, to the um, mathematical computer scientists, but, but really it's anything but. Um, it was a massive intellectual achievement for them to prove that this was even, or to illustrate that this was even possible in principle. Anyway, my, my group's contribution, um, so you ask, you know, <laughs> did I invent these? No. Uh, but beginning about 10 years ago, uh, several collaborators and I, uh, Andrew Blumberg, who's actually co-founder of mine, at Walrus, Srinath Sethi, who's my graduate student at the time, now at Microsoft Research, we asked the question, hey, you know, the, the, this mathematics seems extremely promising. Is it possible to incorporate this stuff into real systems? And my, my colleagues at the time thought that I was crazy because the costs were so high, but we were able to achieve uh, speed ups that almost sound outlandish, like, like, like power, like, a factor of 10 to the 20th power, which is normally not something you read about in a computer science paper, but we were able to accomplish that with a lot of hard work. And I think it was fair to describe our work, um, that, that work as a, as a breakthrough and in terms of bringing this kind of mathematics into practice. And, and that's been our contribution, but we did not 
invent the underlying mathematics, just to be clear. So what are some real life applications for this technology? So that's, it's, it's funny you ask that. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's in, so far, the deployed applications are in uh, blockchain, in particular cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. most notably Zcash. Um, the, there are a number of other startups that are incorporating this technology, typically all related to blockchain or cryptocurrency. In some sense, I think it's, it, you know, I'd like to see applications of this that go beyond, uh, <laughs> that go beyond uh, trade in, uh, in contraband and uh, drugs and, and, and child porn. Right. It would be nice if, if uh, we were using probabilistic proofs for other things. Um, there are other applications. They just haven't been commercialized yet. So, for example, let's say that you're a hardware manufacturer and you're using a factory or fab as it's known overseas and that fab happens to be located in a nation that your nation doesn't have the best relations with well that gives the you now have to worry about the threat that the manufacturer of the hardware actually builds the hardware in a way that's inconsistent with your design so what you'd really like to be able to do is check the answers that that untrusted hardware gives you is this expensive and, to imp implement uh is it would it be expensive to do that or would it uh so when you say expensive to implement the probabilistic proofs, yeah. So um, we've made them a lot. Uh, we ourselves and others have made them um, much less expensive. Um, as I mentioned, we reduce costs by factors of, of ten to the twenty. Um, there are a number of other things that we did as well. Uh, all of that has made them much more suited to practice. But I think it's fair to say that, with the exception of cryptocurrencies, we're still, as a, as a research area, not at the point where this technology has been commercialized, although you know, we are trying to change that. So how's this related to like zero knowledge proofs or ZK snarks or? Yeah, so, so uh, ZK uh, proofs and ZK snarks have gotten a fair bit of attention recently. A zero knowledge proof is simply a probabilistic proof. It was actually okay. introduced in that 1985 paper. It's one in which the proof issuing entity has some input available to it that the verifier simply doesn't get to see. So there's an element of this that provides some privacy to the proving entity. And then a ZK snark, that, that's a catchy acronym for a ZK proof, a zero knowledge proof, that's relatively short and, and in, you know, they say non-interactive. So that means that the proving entity commits to all possible answers to those kinds of cross-examination questions that I mentioned without ever knowing what questions the verifier uh, had asked it. So, yeah. so if you had your druthers, where do you see this type of technology being implemented in, in the future? Like what are the envisioned applications that you have for the future of probabilistic proofs? So what I'd like to see, I mean, I'd love to see it used in that untrusted hardware context that I mentioned earlier. Uh, there are other applications as well, things like private classifiers. Um, if you are the user of a neural network and someone just hands it to you, you might like some sort of assurance that that neural network was like that the weights in there truly correspond to the training data. Uh, there might be cases where the entity that supplies you with the neural network does not have the greatest incentive to give it, you something that was accurately trained. And so you might like some assurance 
that the training was done in a high integrity way. However, the training data itself might be private or sensitive. So what a zero knowledge proof would enable is a proof for, and a probabilistic proof, be a proof for you, George, that the neural network you're using actually was trained correctly given the training data. Another one, uh, another interesting application, and this is something that the United States government has mentioned, specifically in the context of a, of a DARPA program, you might like to be able to create proofs where, like the government, for example, could say and prove to the world that a particular piece of software has an exploit without revealing what the exploit is. Hmm. And the reason for that is they might like to convince everyone, yes, you should upgrade your software, you should patch, without having to make clear what the exploit is because the actual exploit might reveal information that uh, various uh, offensive security types would like to keep to themselves uh, and, and potentially use or use variants of it. But they still want lots of other people to upgrade their software. All right, Mike, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back more, with more from our special guest, the founder and CEO of Walrus Security and professor of computer science at New York University, Mr. Michael Walfish. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed 
and request a complete free phishing analysis at bountymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the founder and CEO of Walrus Security, and professor of computer science at New York University, Mr. Michael Walfish. So, Mike, um, I want to talk a little bit about payment fraud. We, we discussed it a little bit in the first segment. What should prudent and careful companies do about payment fraud? I mean, how should they mitigate it? What should they do if they're a victim of it? What do you recommend? Yeah, so let me leave out our own platform um, from this and just talk about best practices aside from tech. Uh, you need excellent processes with no exceptions and careful documentation. And it's surprising how often that does not exist. But you need, and you know, part of my own view is that it is very difficult to train humans to be uh, error-free. You have to train them that, look, uh, if you don't know the actual counterparty, you need to be, for example, in a conference call with somebody who does know from your side, from your organization, who does know the counterparty, the third person you just added to the conference call from your organization should ID the other person and with them on the phone, uh, then you can say, okay, now I know it's the right person. And then you, the payer, the treasury department can now say, okay, uh, what are your payment details? So and yeah, th- this, is, this is very interesting to me because, you know, I've, I've always, one of the CTOs I had was a mentor of mine at J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, he basically told me all the time, process is king. Process is king. And especially, you know, he was a technologist. I, I, you know, obviously, I think you're, you're very technically inclined. And 
and even people who are technically inclined to say, look, process is king. It's not, there's not going to be one technology solution. There's one button solution. You're going to come in, buy this technology, implement, push the button, and solve your problems. You're really going to have to have good processes in there to make sure that you mitigate and control this risk. That's exactly right. Um, this can be viewed as much more of a process issue than a tech issue. That said, the role of technology in this, again, let's leave our platform out of it. The role of technology is to facilitate those processes. But, but one way to understand this, coming back to that issue that we discussed in the beginning, where your counterparty's systems are compromised, that's not your cybersecurity issue. You can secure your systems till the cows come home. You can make it so that no one ever gets into any of your systems. But the point is that because the communication originates externally, you don't know whether it's actually authentic. And so you're going to need some other mechanism to determine that. Um, right, right. Yeah. What's, what's your opinion on the blockchain explosion we have going on here? Everyone's talking about blockchain and there's, it's, it's some sort of craziness out there. Uh, well, it's a, so, you know, my own view, and this is also uh, almost certainly a fact, is that they're overhyped. Um, you know, I hear people thinking that blockchain is going to end the threat of nuclear war. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. It is not going to do any of those things. But blockchain actually provides us something pretty cool and new, which is that in a federated way, so we don't have to trust a single entity, it provides an immutable record of what happened. And that's definitely a useful construct. There are certainly scenarios in computing, in you know, academic computer science, in industry where you want that, but it's hard to imagine something like that. At least, you know, I may live to regret saying this, but if you think about the transformations in our lives that are going to occur as a result of our current crisis, those are almost certainly going to be many orders of magnitude more substantial than whatever blockchains will, uh, whatever they will wreak. So how are blockchains relevant to what Wallace does? So they're not core to us. Uh, one of our applications is for blockchain. Like if you are trying to send cryptocurrency to somebody else, you need to make sure that you're sending the cryptocurrency to the right place. And our platform has a role to play there. Down the road, you know, this immutable record of what happened is certainly useful for things like non-repudiability. If somebody authenticates themselves to someone else, they don't, we don't want to have the authenticating party later claim that they didn't do that or that wasn't me. And an immutable record of what happened can certainly help with that. Um, but, you know, sometimes when I tell folks, oh, okay, so we're making sure you pay the right person, I get asked, like, is blockchain core to this? And, and, and the answer is no. So I like to ask my, my guests, and I've been asking the last few guests some of these similar questions. What's the most encouraging thing you've seen in cybersecurity lately? So I've seen, a, it, it just taking a, a couple steps back, um, if you think about the state of security around handsets, things like mobile phones and tablets, it's actually pretty good. And of course, it varies among the actual OS vendor, whether we're talking about iOS or Android. But if you compare that to the state of desktop security, and certainly desktop security a number of years ago, handsets are actually pretty good uh, in terms of the degree to which they resist 
uh, various attacks. They're not perfect. Uh, viewers of your show will know that. They're pretty good. Another thing uh, that I'm encouraged by at the level of infrastructure, we've seen fairly widespread adoption of two-factor authentication, as well as just a general expectation on the part of both consumers and enterprises that things like messages will be encrypted. So when you use uh, WhatsApp, again, many of your viewers will know this, but you use WhatsApp, you use um, even email is actually encrypted between email servers. And there's increasingly an expectation, which is fulfilled, but people do it, that data will be encrypted at rest. Then we come to the just general awareness on the part of the public about security. For, for example, people are much more aware now that there is such a thing as fake emails. You know, I mentioned those scams at the beginning. Right. The attackers have had to get very good to, uh, to um, impersonate because people are now aware that there is such a thing as these fake emails. But, but even going beyond that, like if you think about, and, and George, just looking at your background, you know, I, you'll be aware of this as well. But if you think about the like, general awareness of security 10 years ago and then, or even 15 years ago, we are like vastly ahead in, uh, in public awareness of where we were then. And, and maybe some of that is due to the Snowden revelations about yeah. what large organizations are capable of. But just consider for a moment that at the Super Bowl, there was a commercial for a password manager. Yeah. But this is not something that would have uh, taken place 15 years ago. So what's the scariest trend you see in modern security? Let's let's flip the coin. Yeah, so. What's the other side of that? I guess, uh, you know, thinking about it, the the fact that as the defenses get stronger, of course, the attackers are are, are adapting. The sophistication of attacks is, is increasing. Uh, we're seeing things like SIM porting and, and SIM swapping where adversaries gain control of phone numbers. And so then that's another reason that things like phone calls uh, can be compromised. We're seeing attacks on, on two-factor authentication that are quite sophisticated. So of course, it's still better to have two-factor authentication than not, but we are seeing attacks on that. We're also, I mean, when I think about though, and take just take a step back, like what actually worries me at a large scale and I'm not the only one to express these worries, just to be clear, but the fact that our infrastructure, things like power plants and, and, and nuclear plants, were not deployed in a time when everyone was as aware of, of risk and when our adversaries were as capable as they are now. And so the possibility of an attack on power, water treatment, uh, Etc. is super scary. And then that connects to an- another worry, which mm. a number of people have articulated. There are, there are experts on this. I'm not one of them. But voting systems are notoriously insecure. Like high school students can hack. And, and in fact, there, there are videos of high school students attacking voting systems. So that actually scares me as well. How about attacks on password managers? How safe are password managers? Good question. So that depends on how you use them. Uh, if you use them correctly, they're very good. I mean, obviously, you don't want to uh, publicize or tell anyone your master password, and you don't want to do the thing of storing the, the master thing in the, the cloud itself. Uh, but if you use them correctly, they're, they're, very, um, they're a huge benefit to both usability and security, which... I see as a positive. How, how do you use a password manager the wrong way? 
so people avoid to do it. Anyway. You, uh, yeah, well, you uh, store the, uh, the the jewels in the cloud. You put private key material that you might need in the cloud, where, for instance, the cloud provider can gain access to it if they were um, malicious. You have... Um, but that's up to the password manager that you're using, right? That's not to the user itself. Well, right? so sometimes, yeah, so. but there are configurations where people do put that... Um, people do put that information in the cloud. The other thing is like your master password needs to be really strong. Sometimes people pick things that of course they're not. Yeah. And then, um, and then of course, if the adversary gains local control, then they can um, break everything. So what about deep fakes? I mean, should we, we be worried about that? Uh, yeah. So reasonable minds um, can differ on that. Uh, my own view is that the jury's still out. It's undeniable that a lot of the claims about deepfakes have been sensationalized. Of course, there's a lot of incentive to sensationalize the claims. Um, that's because the fakes that people make from very little training data are very obvious and detectable as such. And then you get into the really sophisticated fakes that are impressive where, you know, we have... Um, you know, Barack Obama saying things he never said. But the thing to remember about that is that for a figure like Barack Obama, there's more training data on him than there is on almost anyone else on the planet. I mean, maybe there's more training data on a few other people, but he's almost certainly in the top 10. And going from that, the, in order to create a convincing fake just requires enormous quantities of computational resources which, you know, aren't necessarily going to be deployed on a, on a day-to-day basis. The other thing to say, and this is a point made by others um, as well, which is that what people worry about deepfakes being used for, namely misinformation, propaganda, fake news, those phenomena are much, much older than deepfakes, right? They're arguably as old as human society. And so the ability of something fake to convince people of that which they might have been predisposed to believe anyway is not necessarily anything new because there have always been ways of uh, conducting misinformation campaigns and persuading people with falsehoods or uh, particular perspectives. It's not clear that deep fakes are a, a sea change there. They're simply another tool. So, from a technology perspective, is there any <laughs> specific security technology that you find generally impressive out there? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, you know, I, just thinking in the domain of, of authentication, I really like um, UTF and, and FIDO and, and, and commercialized most prominently in the YubiKey. It, it's quite simple. It works. It defends against a number of attacks, and then we see that mechanism being deployed in a very thoughtful and powerful way by, for example, Google in the context of their Beyond Corp initiative. And many of your listeners will know this, but you know what they've done is say, okay, we're going to redraw the trust perimeter of a network. We're not going to have it be the case that you know if you're inside. 
the network, you're trusted. And if you're outside, you're not. And if you're outside, there's a VPN that makes it look to the network like you are inside, even though you're out. And instead, let's just authenticate individuals on a per-service basis with the YubiKey being a part of that. So I, I actually really like that design. Um, another uh, technology that, that I personally like, and actually my team, both my academic teams and my teams at Walrus live within is uh, a platform called Keybase. And again, some of your viewers will know this. Um, disclosure, the, the founder of Keybase, Max Krohn, is a, is a friend of mine. But Keybase actually does something that is not done by anyone else. And they, you know, if you think about Slack, you know, all of it, on, on the day that Slack is hacked, and we hope that's a if, uh, we hope that's like, you know, if they're hacked, not when they're hacked. But when they are, like so many companies, private communication is going to spill out onto the internet. And so you might like it if that communication were actually encrypted and authenticated. And Keybase does this. It, it does many other things as well, which I personally find quite useful. Um, it's, it's really the first plausible public key infrastructure that is usable because of course usability is a huge problem when it comes to public key cryptography that, that I've seen. So I personally live within that and think that that is um, a very interesting platform worth keeping an eye on. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. I'd love to have you back. We got some panels we might be putting together. I think you'd be great on, on some of these panels to talk about uh, blockchain and some of this uh, more technical stuff. But I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. And thanks for having me, George. I appreciate it as well. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 